This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. This week, a new breakthrough in halting the progression of MS. A scientist reports on what it's like to be zapped by an electric eel and why we might have a bit of breathing space when it comes to climate change. Plus, bionic bodies. We hear about a replacement pancreas for diabetes and a retinal implant to restore sight for some forms of blindness. I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. To kick us off this week, a potential new therapy to help the two million people around the world living with multiple sclerosis, or MS, has been announced by scientists in the US. MS is caused by a rogue population of immune cells attacking a substance in the brain and spinal cord called myelin. Myelin normally works like an insulator that you'd find around an electric cable. In the nervous system, it shields and supports nerve fibres. But as the myelin becomes more damaged by the immune assault, nerve signals are no longer faithfully conveyed and patients become progressively more disabled. Now, researcher Brad Hoffman from the University of Florida has found a way to reprogram the immune system to drive the creation of regulatory immune cells that can damp down the action of the rogue cells. In tests on mice, it stopped the disease in its tracks. We do this by taking a harmless virus and engineering that virus to express the same marker that the rogue cells are going after. Doing this liver gene transfer, as we call it, induces a second type of cell called a regulatory T cell. The regulatory cells can suppress the rogue cells that are causing the damage. And how are you actually doing these experiments? What are you doing to investigate this? Because this is not in patients yet, is it? No, no, no. We're not in patients as of yet. What we do is we have a mouse model that we can induce a multiple sclerosis-like disease that mimics many of the early stages that would be seen in human MS. 
So talk me through what happens to these mice then and how you actually set the experiments up to prove that this virus you've engineered, which can drive the immune system to regulate itself better, what actually happens when you do this? So basically what happens is when we induce disease in these mice, the mice that are not treated would go through a uh, process in about over about two weeks in which they become somewhat paralyzed. If we give this treatment before we induce disease in the mice, we can completely prevent the disease from even starting. When we do the same technique, trying to reverse disease, about 10 days to two weeks afterwards, the mice undergo a, a reversal of disease and they actually regain function in their extremities quite nicely and almost down to pre-disease levels. And you can prove, can you, that the reason that's happening is because you've now got this new population of immune master regulators that are suppressing what were previously these rogue cells attacking the nervous system. Absolutely. When we do this technique, we can identify the marker that we have encoded into these cells, that these cells are definitively targeting the same marker as the rogue cells. And so when they encounter one another, they will suppress them. And is this safe? Because obviously you're putting a virus that shouldn't be there into liver cells and making them express this nervous system protein that shouldn't be there and then making a whole population of immune cells spring up, which weren't there. Lots of things changing. Are there side effects? At this point, based on all the research we have going on, we do not see any uh, side effects at this point. Liver function maintains. The mice are able to live long lives after we have done this, if they've been treated. We don't see, at least in the mouse model at this time, any adverse effects. Now, how far away do you think you are from being able to embark on a, a safe human clinical trial? Because obviously for the, the people who are afflicted with this disease, time is everything because it is a progressive condition. We are probably several years away from being in the clinic. Our results are amazing results, and we're very optimistic of this being able to be translated into the clinic. The technique that we have used has already been tested in the clinic in some aspects, but not specifically. So it's going to take a little bit of time to kind of merge the technology that's already in the clinic with the stuff that has to still be qualified for safety reasons to move it along into a human population. And considering what might be achieved for people who already have disability, the immune attack on the nervous system often leaves, for want of a better phrase, scarring in the nervous system, which is why people do get progressively worse with MS. So to what extent do you think you'll be able to just stop the disease in its tracks? And to what extent do you think you'll be able to undo some of the pre-existing disability these people have got? That's, a, again, a great question. Based on all the research that we were presenting here that we've been working on, the technique that we're using is definitely more geared towards somebody who is recently diagnosed. It's trying to stop the disease early in its path. The idea here is that if we can stop the disease from advancing, that the patient would have a much longer quality of life over, over time. Incredible stuff. Brad Hoffman and his work has just been published in the journal Molecular Therapy. Now for climate change. Limiting the increase in global average temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels was one stated goal of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Many said it was unachievable. But now a new analysis suggests we may have some breathing space. Michael Wheeler spoke to ETH Zurich climate scientist Yuri Rogo. In the Paris Agreement, there is a long-term temperature goal aiming to keep warming well below 2 degrees and we also aim 
at limiting it to 1.5. So basically, this is annual global mean temperature increase relative to pre-industrial levels, somewhere mid-19th century. Now, the question then, of course, arises, how can we do this? And literature has shown that the warming we see is nearly linearly proportional to the total amount of carbon dioxide that we emit into the atmosphere. That means there is a certain maximum amount of carbon dioxide that we are allowed to emit into the atmosphere ever, also often referred to as a carbon budget. So the carbon budget is key to being able to, to reach that target. What was it that you did to calculate what that carbon budget might be? So to figure out how much carbon we can still emit, we basically used three different modeling approaches. One is a simple climate model. Uh, another method is a model of intermediate complexity, which was used to uh, verify the simple climate model. And finally, we also use results from the most complex state-of-the-art Earth system models. And in the past, carbon budgets were often calculated relative to pre-industrial. So that means that small errors and, and discrepancies, they accumulate over time. So what we did is we basically reset these uncertainties by expressing the carbon budget relative to today. What we find, if we take into account where we are today, we get to a, a budget of around 700 to 800 billion tons of carbon dioxide. This corresponds to roughly 20 years of current emissions. And so previous carbon budgets gave us far less time. Exactly. Previous carbon budgets gave us far less time and basically suggested that keeping warming to below 1.5 was a, almost a geophysical impossibility. You know, an increase in temperature of 1.5 degrees seems like a, a small increase in temperature. Mm -hmm. Why are such small increases in temperature so detrimental to our climate? One has to be aware that these increases are global average increases. In general, people are not necessarily interested in average temperature increase. What we are interested in is the risks that can arise with, for example, extreme events. There are clear shifts in the extremes yeah, okay. So as the average temperature shifts, so too does the extreme end of the spectrum shift so that we're experiencing more extreme weather events. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. In some regions, this is a very clear trend. So your analysis has given us a larger carbon budget and some more hope. And I think there's two ways that that message can be taken up. I mean, on one hand, if people believe that we've gone past a point of no return, then they also believe that any efforts towards conservation will be meaningless. So your analysis steps us back from that, which I think is a good thing. But on the other hand, it may have the potential to relax people a bit more about climate change. So uh, I'm not sure which one of those will be most prevalent. Um, what do you think? Our research really put the possibility of limiting warming to 1.5 degree back on the table. And I think that's a hopeful message. But that doesn't really mean that the pressure is off. It still requires actions way beyond the pledges that are currently on the table by countries and global carbon dioxide emissions need to be reduced immediately to become zero by mid-century. And that's an incredibly challenging feat. So it looks like we have a bit more room to manoeuvre, but not much. That was Michael Wheeler speaking to Yuri Rogo, whose work was published in Nature Geoscience. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Katie Haler. If you'd like to find out more about the programme, you go to nakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or look us up on Facebook. Still to come, what it's like to be shocked by an electric eel. The scientist who volunteered himself in the name of science recounts his experience. Before that, budget cigarettes that can be as much as 25% cheaper than mainstream brands are undermining anti-smoking strategies and have contributed to the deaths of thousands of young children and babies across Europe. That's what scientists at Imperial College London have found in a recent study looking at 23 European nations, including the UK. From Imperial, Philippos Philippidis. We know very well that increasing tobacco prices reduces consumption, so smokers quit or they smoke less than they used to and young people are less likely to start smoking. We also know that when pregnant women smoke or when they are exposed to secondhand smoke and when babies are exposed to that as well, it is more likely that infants will die. So there is a link between prices of uh, tobacco products, cigarettes in particular, and infant mortality. But what we didn't know was if differences in prices between average-priced cigarettes and cheap cigarettes are important in that sense, and whether the availability of cheap cigarettes does have an effect on infant mortality. So if you jack the price up of a packet of cigarettes, then the argument goes logically, fewer people will buy them because they're more expensive. But on the other hand, if you've got some for want of a better phrase, cheap and nasty cigarettes, which are nonetheless cigarettes, people may switch to those cheap cigarettes, and so, in fact, it may undermine some of the benefit of putting the price up. Exactly, and availability of cheap cigarettes doesn't happen by accident. The market is dominated by a handful of uh, transnational tobacco companies, and they are able to load taxes, for example, onto their premium brands, and keep uh, cheap cigarettes uh, at a low price so that poor people or young people can buy cigarettes and become addicted to nicotine. And then they hope that they might move on to different, more expensive brands. And you wanted to know what is the impact of this on infant mortality? Exactly. So we looked into the association between the differential in prices between average-priced and cheap cigarettes, meaning the difference between minimum and average cigarette prices and infant mortality in the European Union. We found data uh, for 23 European Union countries on tobacco prices, but also on mortality among babies uh, up to their first birthday for the period between 2004 and 2014. And what has changed between 2004 and 2014 in terms of price? And how has infant mortality altered over the same period? This period has seen a decline in infant mortality overall across the EU in essentially all countries. Also, prices have increased because of um, taxation. But the increase in uh, average-priced cigarettes has been different than um, minimum-priced cigarettes. To be fair, um, because of high taxation, there is uh, less space now than it used to be for tobacco companies to manipulate prices. So the difference between average-priced and cheap cigarettes was smaller in 2014 compared to 2004. But still it was as big as 25% in some of the countries that we looked into. So what is the impact then of a very big differential in the price between if you've got a premium brand that's expensive but then you've got readily available cheap cigarettes sitting alongside it? 
what happens is that smokers, instead of quitting or instead of uh, reducing their consumption, they have the opportunity to switch to these uh, cheaper cigarettes and therefore the effect of uh, price increases is attenuated. And what we've seen in our uh, study specifically between 2004 and 2014, having a big price differential was associated with more infant deaths the subsequent year. Taking everything into account, we estimated that if there was no price differential between average price and cheap cigarettes throughout this period in these 23 European Union countries, more than 3,000 infant deaths could have been avoided, which is a big number. It is, isn't it? What then is the best strategy for politicians, the taxman, to adopt in order to achieve the best possible outcome? One obvious way is to introduce higher taxation, which some countries like the UK have done. But also, I think governments should look into introducing specific taxes for cheap cigarettes or raising the floor of tobacco prices. I think that would maximise the benefits from increased taxation. Philippos Philippidis from Imperial College London. And that work was published in the journal JAMA Paediatrics. And time now for this week's Myth Conception. Izzy Clark's been boiling down the science of microwave ovens. If you're like me, after a long day, you come home starving. And the last thing you want to do is spend ages making dinner. Thank goodness for the trusty microwave oven, the saviour of leftover takeaways. But wait, it's using microwaves to resurrect my korma and microwaves are radiation does this mean because of my microwave oven i'm eating a cancer inducing curry no no it doesn't so let's turn up the heat on this myth conception let's start with radiation it's all around us in varying amounts and is essentially the release of energy It occurs naturally, but radiation can be given off by everyday items too. Light from the sun? Yep, that's radiation. And if you called your mum today, radiation was there too. But that doesn't mean you're in constant danger. All forms of radiation can be placed within a spectrum. The electromagnetic spectrum. And within this, microwaves are fairly low down, and therefore low in energy. But how is the food actually heated? When you hit that reheat button, a small wheel-like device called a magnetron gets to work. Its heated core emits electrons that circulate through a constant magnetic field. They sweep through small hole-like cavities at a frequency of just under 2.5 billion times a second. This produces a changing field that frazzles our food. And when you nuke your dinner, it's actually the water molecules in your food that absorb this thermal energy. It causes them to rotate back and forth, and it's the friction between these molecules that creates heat. Unlike x-rays, which in large amounts can be damaging, microwaves are non-ionising radiation, and that's a good thing. This essentially means that whilst the rays have energy, it's not enough to boot electrons from their atoms and change the chemical structure of your food. 
one of the earliest studies into microwave food actually found that no adverse effects were found on the diets cooked by microwaves compared to those cooked conventionally. But be warned, over a 10-year period, 21 individuals a day in the US were treated for microwave-related injuries. But the majority of cases were for scalding spillages. So whilst your food won't be radioactive anytime soon, it's best to pop on some oven gloves before you eagerly tuck into those leftovers. Thank you, Izzy. And if you have some science you'd like scrutinised, please drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet us at Naked Scientist or find us on Facebook and we will take a look. In the 1800s, while touring the Amazon, the naturalist Alexander von Humboldt documented an attack on a horse by an electric eel, which allegedly leapt out of the water to stun the animal. Yet despite being studied for over 200 years since, this and a video on YouTube were the only documented claims of this behaviour. Until, that is, Vanderbilt University's Ken Catania got his hands on an electric eel, literally. The shock can be ten times the power from a taser. He told Tom Crawford what, in addition to his own pain threshold, he's discovered. The main function of these high-voltage pulses is to activate nerve endings in nearby animals. And so in that sense, it's a lot like a taser. And then once you know that, you can start to ask, well, how would you design your taser to creatively activate nerve endings? So one thing they can do is freeze up animals for predation. That works very well for fish and water. But they have this challenge if a predator were to come at them in shallow water, which actually happens in the Amazon during the dry season, how would you defend yourself against, say, a predatory cat or some other predator, a crocodilian that was coming at you, and you only had limited amount of electrical resources to deliver? Well, it turns out the best way to do that without having much of the energy dispersed in the water is to lift out of the water, press against the threat directly, and give off your high voltage. It's really a shocking behaviour. Like <laughs> nice, you beat me to the pod. So just to just to re-clarify what you said, these electric eels, they literally jump out of the water and then zap their target. Exactly. And it, it started by realising when I approached them with a metal-rimmed net, they would attack the net by leaping up and shocking it. And that's the only time I ever saw an electric eel try to come out of the water. So that was a big clue that there's something special going on with these conductive nets. The eels interpret conductors as living things. They interpret large conductors as threatening living things. And this is clearly a defensive behavior. And so the research that's recently published was basically trying to work out the puzzle of the electric circuit that develops as the eel comes up out of the water. And so I had designed a series of experiments to address each variable in that except for one. And that was the target, or in this case, my arm. So <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Ultimately... So, so, sorry, Ken. Just, just, let's just back up a sure. second. So you sure. you were purposefully putting your arm into the tank with these electric eels in order to be shocked? Eventually, yes. But <laughs> I got there by really wanting to know the answer to each of the variables in the circuit. And so I wanted to know the electromotive force of the eel, the internal resistance of the eel, the resistance of the water, and then the variable values of this other resistance that develops as the eel comes out of the water and the the sum of the current can pass back down the eel to the water. And I had solved for all of those, and it kind of gave the illusion that, wow, I've really got this puzzle figured out. 
But there's a quirk of electric circuitry that if you have two resistors in parallel, which is something that happens when the eel comes out, you need to know both of those resistances to understand how much current flows in the circuit. And so I was scratching my head about what am I going to do about this? And the final answer was to develop this device that could measure the current through my arm. I, I love how you said there the obvious answer was to electrocute yourself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, who doesn't want to get electrocuted by an electric eel? Come on, deep down. <laughs> and I should also say this was quite a small electric eel. So I wasn't taking any crazy risks. Uh, I, you know, Faraday played with electric eels. Humboldt played with electric eels. There's a long history of people um, experimenting with the so-called hands-on approach. I mean, I wouldn't do it lightly with a large eel, and I didn't do it with a large so you were saying you were trying to measure all of the, the variables in the system to be able to calculate the, the electric circuit. So what was it that you found out? Yeah, so the voltage of the small eel that I was working with was about 200 volts. Eels can get up to 500, sometimes 600 volts when they're very large. They can get to a couple meters long. And I guess one of the key things that I think this research allows you to do is pretty easily plug in the numbers to extrapolate to these larger animals. So we know that people get shocked in the Amazon by this behavior. In fact, there's a kind of amazing video that went viral recently showing a fisherman getting shocked by, by a large electric eel with this leaping behavior. So now we have a good idea of how much current goes through a person based on eel size. Specifically for my case, it was about 40 to 50 milliamps. And uh, that was sufficient to be quite a deterrent, I'll put it that way. <laughs> if you've gone to a really colorful, interesting party and been tased recently, it would be a lot like that. It would be actually, for a large eel, it would be 20 times the power of a oh, law wow. enforcement taser. Yeah. It was a lot of fun to do, if you can believe that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Electrifying stuff. Ken Catania was telling Tom Crawford about the work he's recently published in the journal Current Biology. I've been to a lot of colourful parties in my time. Never got tased at any of them, though. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Katie Haler. And if you'd like to find out more about The Naked Scientist or listen to any of our extensive back catalogue of programmes, they're all online. It's at nakedscientist.com. Now, in this half of the programme, we're going to talk about bionic bodies. We're exploring the tech that's taking over our tissues, from replacement retinas right through to an artificial pancreas for diabetes. But first, before we go inside the body, what about devices that assist from the outside? Russ Angold is co-founder of Exobionics, a company that makes robotic exoskeletons you can wear to help you lift heavy things. So hi, Russ. What do these exoskeletons look like? Uh, that's a great question, Katie. So it, it's just like it sounds. It's an exoskeleton. It goes around the person. It looks like a robot um, and it has actuators very similar to robots to actually help that user uh, move or provide assistance. I'm imagining a kind of Transformers Independence Day type thing here. Maybe, is that right? Is that sci-fi? Uh, it's probably not like a Transformer. It's, um, it's uh, slimmer, smaller. We try to make them as uh, light and as, as felt as possible um, so that users can move around in the environment without, without bumping into things. Okay, so how do they actually work then? Um, so you just put it on. Um, it depends on what type of exoskeleton it is. We have medical exos that are designed for people with stroke or spinal cord injury. They get those sized and put on and do a one-hour rehab session. We have other exoskeletons like our exovest that we you put on like a backpack and strap to your arms and your torso, and it provides assistance to your arms. So it depends on the type of exoskeleton you're wearing. 
So I guess the, maybe the medical side is a little bit more obvious in terms of who might benefit from this. But what about the other side, just lifting heavy things? What's the demand for this sort of technology? So we actually, uh, about two years ago, started getting a lot of interest from construction companies and industrial companies, manufacturing companies, saying that you know they have an aging workforce. There's, um, they, they know how to do the jobs, but their bodies um, are just breaking down over time. And is there something we can do with exoskeletons to provide them that extra endurance they need to get through the day uh, safely and, and productively? So how are these sorts of things powered then? Uh, that, that's actually a really interesting question. So some of our early devices have no power at all. Basically, what we do is cancel out the effects of gravity. So you can imagine, you know, I, I have this vision, everyone that's hung a ceiling fan and tried to hold that ceiling fan up in their hands. Um, really, what you're fighting there is gravity. And we have our exo vest that just uses springs to cancel the effects of gravity and basically make your arms weightless. Uh, so you can really hold your arms out forever uh, without getting tired. Um, that's step one. Eventually, they'll be powered uh, to provide more capability. Um, you know, the, one of the big applications we see is material handling. So think of guys moving objects around, your luggage handling, uh, your construction worker, your maintenance worker, manufacturing. People are always moving stuff. And so we think that's a great application for exoskeletons. So this seems to mean then a lot less strain, a lot less potential backache, aches and pains. Does this have any consequence for productivity? Are people able to do manual jobs quicker? Oh, absolutely. They're, actually, they're, they're able to do the jobs quicker and, and safer. So uh, we had an example where a, a guy was drilling anchors overhead with a, a, you know, a, a concrete rotary hammer. And without our zero-G arm, he was drilling uh, about 80 holes a day. And we gave him the arm, which then makes that tool effectively weightless and helps push into the ceiling. And he went from 80 holes a day to over 400 holes a day. And he was able to ho go home at the end of the day and help his family with the farm and not be completely um, exhausted from the long day's work. Wow, that is an impressive difference. Now, you mentioned there the Zero-G arm, and I know you have a couple of other products, one being the Exo Vest. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the difference between those. Sure. So the, the Zero-G arm um, basically mounts to a worker's uh, aerial lift platform or scaffolding and connects to their tool and makes that tool weightless. Again, it's not powered, we're just canceling gravity, but if anyone tried to hold a 20 pound or 10 kilo tool out in front of them um, for any period of time, it's, it's exhausting. So we basically make that weightless so then the, the user can focus on the quality of work and getting the job done without straining their arms. Um, the vest is a wearable device, so it actually straps to the wear and makes their arms weightless. So you can think of automotive uh, assembly, aero assembly uh, in factories, anytime where you're spending a lot of time with your hands overhead, which happens a lot in construction world now because a lot of the um, systems are put in the ceiling. So um, it basically makes your arms buoyant, like you're floating underwater, um, relieving all that stress and strain from your shoulders and back. And is precision also a factor here? Something is obviously particularly important in construction, as well as just productivity. Right. Well, you can imagine it. once the strain of either holding the heavy tool up your or the fatigue of holding your arms up is gone, um, then all of a sudden we see an increase in quality, which means less rework. Um, you know, the job gets done better. You don't have to come back and finish things up. So quality is a big aspect. I mean, we see safety, productivity and quality as the, the three real benefits of using this type of technology. And very briefly, are we in danger of all turning into couch potatoes as a result of this kind of technology? Not at all. This technology uh, gives you more endurance, but the workers are still 
working. They're using other muscles that we can't augment. So uh, there is no risk of that. Thank you very much, Russ Angold from Exobionics. Now, heading inside the body now, about 40 million people worldwide have what is called type 1 diabetes. These individuals can't make the sugar-controlling hormone insulin, usually because their immune systems have attacked the tissue in the pancreas that normally produces this hormone. As a result, the body cannot regulate blood glucose levels itself, and the person has to regularly measure their blood sugar and then inject artificial insulin to keep their glucose levels stable. This can be inconvenient, uncomfortable, and it can be embarrassing. But if they don't control blood sugar they risk damaging their eyes, kidneys and blood vessels. So there's a strong motivation to keep it in check. To help them solve this problem, Joan Taylor at De Montfort University has built a wristwatch-sized, implantable, artificial pancreas with no moving or electrical parts that just uses a clever glucose-sensitive gel packed with insulin to do the job. At the present time, we're looking at three implant sites. They're all inside the body cavity near to the liver with blood vessel access. And that's really important because our real pancreases secrete insulin into the blood supply to the liver because it's the liver that does the chemistry. It's just that the pancreas is the supplier of the drug. And we want to try and mimic that. So we had an idea that we would produce a chemical substance that was responsive to glucose. So we actually synthesised a polymer, which is in our case a kind of semi-solid plastic. And that substance contains a glucose receptor and a glucose interactor so that the interactor makes contact with the receptor and can form a lock and key, which unlocks when you add glucose to it. So as glucose floods the polymer, then the polymer becomes much more permeable. And what we did was to build that into a device that holds insulin so that the insulin is forced to exit through this polymer to reach body fluids where the same polymer actually senses whether the glucose is high or low and then transmits the insulin either fast or slowly depending on the need that it discovers on contact with body fluid. So it's completely different. It's not electronic and it's not biological. So because of that, it is actually very fast acting. It doesn't have delays. And because it's not biological, it doesn't need immunosuppression drugs to be given, which is the case with transplanted pancreases. How far have you got with this so far? Is this in just in a dish or are you actually doing this in animals now? Well, we did a lot of study over the last 20 years in dishes, but it got to the point where my mentor of many years said to me, do you know, if you're really saying this could be done, you've actually got to prove it. And it occurred to us that there was really no way of proving this with cells in a dish because what you need here is the device to respond to the biological system in its diabetic state, and that animal or volunteer to respond back. It's an interactive system, so you've got to do it in a live system. So what we've done is to use diabetic pigs, and that work has really pleased us. We are doing well with that. So you have a pig with diabetes. You implant one of these devices. What happens to the pig? 
Well, the pig is quite happy, doesn't feel it. The device itself is about the size of a pocket watch. And once it has recovered from the implant, we watch the blood sugar come down to normal levels. And then what we do is to challenge the pig's diabetic system by giving it large amounts of treats and watching how well the hyperglycemia is controlled. The definition of being not diabetic is that a large burden of glucose should normalise within two hours. And in our experience, we have had the normalisation happening in less than an hour. And how much insulin can the device hold? In other words, between top-ups, how long would a potential diabetic be controlled for? In terms of actual volume, it's about five millilitres. But in terms of the time that that would control symptoms for, it's about 50 days. I suppose one risk is that one is walking around with locked away inside this stuff, potentially a life-threatening reservoir of insulin. You are right there. That's an inherent problem with the design as it presently exists. But we have plans to modify our system so that instead of the insulin reservoir being liquid, it itself will be in gel form. So should the device break, then there wouldn't be an instant leakage of the insulin. And how long will the device potentially function for? In other words, how long have you taken it out trying this to know that the polymer doesn't degrade, it doesn't break down and and does reliably control blood sugar? We have kept the gel in a simulated animal fluid for two years and it hasn't degraded. What we did was to put it inside a membrane bag and that bag has pores in it that do not allow enzymes into the gel that would degrade it doesn't allow bacteria in that would degrade it, but it is large enough to let insulin out. So based on that experiment, we think that the longevity of the gel is at least two years. And because the gel is in good shape when we've taken that experiment apart again, we think it should be much longer too. And in terms of the pathway into the clinic, how far along that road are you? You have to have a statistical number of animal experiments to show that the treatment is safe and effective. So once we've finished our small number of experiments, we will have to apply for grants to do that larger number. And then once you have that evidence, you might be allowed to take it into phase one clinical trials. So I would think there's five years work there. And then once you've got into phase one, there's another similarly long period before it's actually released onto the public uh, in a bigger way. So quite a long time, I think. But what we hope is that we'll be able to show that this thing actually works and that even if we don't take it further, it will add to the knowledge out there. And that if we don't, then somebody will take this out into clinic. It's advantages for diabetic sufferers are that not only does it keep the blood glucose steady, which is a major advantage, but that the whole thing is invisible from the outside. And really what we just need now is the facility to develop what we've got. Amazing project, isn't it? And that will be a godsend for people who do have diabetes. Joan Taylor from De Montfort University was speaking to me earlier in the week. You're listening to The Naked Scientist and I'm Chris Smith and with me, Katie Haler. Still to come, the replacement retina to help blind people to recover lost vision 
and also the question of how much alcohol added to food remains by the time you come to eat it. Well, I guess we'll be finding out. But before that, we've considered robotic exoskeletons and an implantable replacement pancreas. But sometimes a prosthesis isn't right for a range of reasons and a transplant of human tissue is the best option. One example is when a person loses a hand or a limb. But not only are there psychological obstacles to overcome with this sort of surgery, practitioners were initially also worried about the challenge posed by immune rejection. For this reason, it's only within the last 20 years that doctors have carried out the first hand transplant. Now it's gathering pace, and Alex Ashcroft heard why from Leeds University hand surgeon Simon Kay, who is also director of the UK Hand Transplant Programme. When you lose an upper limb or part of an upper limb, the options are to live with what you have, to create a prosthetic or to have a limb transplant. And limb transplantation is very new. You take a hand from a recently deceased person who's on the donor register, just as you would for a kidney or a liver, and you transplant that onto the limb that's deficient. But then that limb lives and has nourishment from its blood supply and its function begins as the nerve regeneration occurs in the limb. You said that it's quite novel. What sort of surgical advances you and others have made to get to the point where you can transplant limbs or hands to other people? The first hand transplant took place in '99, And the most important hurdle that we didn't appreciate in the very early days is the behavioural one of the psychology of the patient. The other main hurdle that was much vaunted but actually proved to be very easy to deal with is the immunological rejection risk. That is to say, just as you can reject a kidney or a liver, you can reject the limb. So that barrier that we thought was enormous has actually begun to recede. The great thing about a limb transplant that has skin is that when it begins to reject, you can see it immediately as a rash. So we found actually that the issue of immunological rejection is relatively straightforward to deal with. The other barrier has been understanding whether the long-term regeneration of the nerves and the recovery of movement and feeling in the limb is going to be at a level that we would think is useful. And I'm pleased to say that's proved to exceed our expectations as well. Are donors a problem? Nobody really cares what their liver or their kidney looks like as long as it does the job. In hand transplant, it really is important because one of the functions of the hand is that it's on view all the time. And although we have a small volume of recipients in the UK and a large volume of donors, matching not just immunologically but also in size, approximate age and skin characteristics, makes the pool much smaller. So finding the right donor is a challenge. How do these limb transplants, in terms of the outcomes that they've achieved, how do they compare to people who've had prosthetics? Now comparing transplanted limbs with prosthetic limbs is very interesting. They've been, as it were, in competition between transplant and prostheses. In our view that's not appropriate because they do very different things. The vast majority of patients will be improved and functionally improved by prosthesis alone. And the great benefit of a prosthesis is that you don't need to give the patient drugs and immunosuppression in order to use it. However, the limitation of a prosthesis is that it's not human. 
And one of the things about the hand is that it's one of the very defining attributes of a human being. So it's warm and sensate. We gesture with it. We stroke with it. We feel with it. That humanity you won't get from a prosthesis. You do get it from a hand transplant. You get the cosmetic, the aesthetic, and the functional, and also the humanness of it. But it is at the cost of immunosuppressive drugs. And they have pretty severe side effects, I understand. I think rather than saying they have severe side effects, they have significant side effects, which can, because we now have a great choice of drugs, we can chop and change and mix and minimise the side effects. But there's no doubt that for a young person having a hand transplant, if we assume that they keep that transplant for the rest of their natural life, and they're on immunosuppression for the rest of their natural life, that life will be slightly shortened. So when you're contemplating hand transplant, just as with any other major medical decision about treatment, you have to weigh the benefits of the treatment very carefully against the disadvantages. And because we haven't done hand transplants until 99, we're still beginning to fill in the boxes on either side of that risk-benefit equation. Where do you think your field will be in the next decade to come? I think the proof of concept is now virtually done. These things move in a slow pace, but I think it is becoming understood and accepted that hand transplantation is reliable, and furthermore, that it produces very good and useful results that are enduring. And those have been very important bridges to cross. Shifting the focus a little bit to Sergio Canvero's attempt to do the world's first human head transplant in December. (laughs) What do you think about this? I think it's a thing that needs to be debated and the ethics very carefully considered. But when we talk about head transplant, what we're really talking about is a body transplant. The internal human being resides within the cranium. And if you have an alert, active human brain and you have a body that is failing, then there is a logic to saying, well, can I replace the body? And there's no theoretical reason why you can't. So if you have a quadriplegic with organ failure, what you might say is, well, the body is an inert support mechanism for the brain and I'd like to exchange that. Of course, it's conceptually a head transplant because that's a smaller part. But I see no overriding technical reason this can't be conducted as long as you're not expecting the body to function mechanically and get up and walk. Ah, because of connecting the spinal cord. Because connecting the spinal cord is the holy grail of spinal surgery and that's nowhere near at the moment. Simon Kay there speaking with Alex Ashcroft. And it was interesting what Simon was saying about immunosuppression there, Chris. Why is it the case that this should shorten life? Well, the reason is, Katie, that the immune system is there for a reason. And if you have to take drugs to deactivate the immune system, they don't just deactivate the bit of the immune system that is potentially attacking the new organ or the graft. They suppress the entire immune system and this means you're at greater risk of getting infections from various sources bacterial sources viral sources fungal sources so that can have an impact but also your immune cells patrol your body looking for cancer and there is therefore a higher risk that some of your cells may become cancerous and not be removed by the immune system because it's being deactivated 
there's also a third thing, which is that the drugs themselves are poisonous. Every drug that we take can have side effects. And so if you take a drug into your body, there will be side effects. And some of these drugs do themselves have damaging effects on end organs, including your kidney, for instance, and the liver sometimes. And as a result of that, that can also render you slightly less healthy. So all these things add together to be a slight reduction in health. But of course, that's tiny in proportion to the enormous benefit returned to you by having had a transplant of, say, a heart or a lung or a liver, or in this case, we're talking about a limb. Well, let's take a look at uh, what modern science can do for a growing problem worldwide, and that is blindness. Because as more people live for longer into old age, more of them are succumbing to sight problems, often because of disease processes affecting the retina, which is the patchwork of light-sensitive tissue which is at the back of the eye and has the job of converting light waves into brain waves and enabling us to see. If this gets damaged, though, it can't repair itself and we suffer sight loss. With us now is Oxford University's Robert McLaren, who's developed a prosthetic retina and he's got it into clinical trials. Robert, what does this thing look like if one looked at it? Hello, Chris. Um, We are working actually with the German engineering firm Retina Implant. And and really, I should say that um, the development of the technology is is really something that's been ongoing with Retina Implant for the last 10 years. And we've really been working with them over the last five years in clinical trials in Oxford. And the purpose of the the Retina Implant is to put at the back of the eye a light-sensitive array that is electronic rather than biological. So if I can explain it another way, the light-sensing cells known as photoreceptors gradually degenerate in diseases like age-related macular degeneration and retinitis pigmentosa. And the electronic retina is a device that is light-sensitive, a bit like the, um, the, the a bit like your mobile phone with, with a digital camera. It senses the images and then it stimulates the retina electronically in place of the photoreceptors. The retina has multiple layers and in one place are the photoreceptors, the rods and cones. They send electrical messages to cells further down the retina, which is what makes the optic nerve and sends these messages pinging off to the brain. So in the diseases that you're looking at, those rods and cones are gone, but the cells that make the optic nerve and can send messages to the brain, they still survive, and and you're putting signals into those cells. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely correct. The the pathology of retinitis pigmentosa is loss of one layer of the cells, the light-sensing cells. And of course, if someone's lost these cells, they are unable to perceive light at all. Um, and they're completely blind. But the eye itself remains relatively intact. The, the, the eye looks normal, it moves around, it focuses the image. And most importantly, the optic nerve, which connects the eye to the brain, is also relatively normal. So the technology that we've been looking at with the electronic retina is really for patients with retinitis pigmentosa. It wouldn't, for instance, be suitable for patients who have a disease known as glaucoma, in which the nerve is damaged, or indeed if the eye had been lost through an injury or, or trauma. How big is the device and how do you, as an ophthalmic surgeon, get it inside someone's eye? It's approximately three and a half by four millimetres in size. And that's the actual light sensing part, which has got 1600 pixels on it. There's a flat cable as well that connects it to a power supply. And the power supply is located under the skin behind the ear. And so there is a cable which goes underneath the skin um, across the side of the head un- under a muscle known as the temporalis muscle um, to connect it actually up to the, to the power supply. So we have to slide it under the retina without damaging the retina. And we do that by sliding it through a very small slit in the wall of the eye. Um, it is quite fiddly. I have to say there's a lot of connections and things and, and placement to do. And it takes a long time to do that. But as ophthalmologists, we are quite used to working in small spaces. So it's 
relatively straightforward in terms of adapting the technology you already have. And a person who has it implanted and then you switch it on, what is their experience? Well, this is um, quite an amazing time for us all, actually, when we get someone who's been blind for maybe 10 or, or even more years who has no light perception to then sit there in that room when we um, activate the device for the first time, usually about three weeks after surgery, enough time for things to heal up. Um, and, you know, it's, it, for them, it's a life-changing moment and it's very exciting for us, everyone in the team who gets to know the patients well, and we're all very anxious until that final switch on takes place. Um, and once the patient is able to see things, we know that the whole process has been a success. Do they see colour, or at the moment are you just seeing spots of white light on the black background? Yes, it's very much black and white. The light-sensing cells, photoreceptors, come in three colours, effectively red, green and blue, and they build up a coloured image. But that processing we don't currently have in the implant. It's really just on or off. Um, I would make it it's sort of similar to the very early television pictures, very grainy black and white image coming and going. It's certainly nothing that you would describe as being normal vision, but it's enough for these patients to get around and see things and have some independence. Can they, for instance, recognise a face? Because people who have visual decrement say that they really struggle to see people's faces across the street, they can't read their favourite book, they can't watch their favourite television programme. What level of function do they get with this device? Well, that's very interesting because, of course, the the human brain is an amazing thing. And and whilst patients wouldn't recognize a face on a still image, for instance, looking at a photograph, um, when the image is moving around, they get a lot more information out of it. And they can see and recognize people by the way they move. And also, I know some of my patients have described being able to recognize different dogs, for instance, because, of course, a lot of blind patients (laughs) have, have guide dogs. So, you know, there are cues there. But the moving image is really the most important. And that gives them the cues they need to recognize things in more TDL than you would think based on the the number of pixels. It's amazing work. Thank you very much, Robert, for joining us to talk about it. That was Robert McLaren from the University of Oxford. And thank you to our other guests who were on the programme this week, Russ Angold, Simon Kay and Joan Taylor. And to finish, time for question of the week. Alex Ashcroft has been cooking up an answer to this question from Zeti. When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? I asked Vayu Maini Reuktol from Harvard University to turn up the heat on Zeti's question. Alcohol-containing ingredients are really prized for their ability to impart complex flavors and aroma. Many people, when they cook with alcohol, actually assume that cooking completely evaporates the alcohol because the alcohol has a lower boiling point than water. But contrary to popular belief, a significant amount of alcohol could actually remain at the end of the cooking process. This is important to consider when you serve dishes to people who may need to control their alcohol intake. Wait, so my cockovan can still get me drunk? How do we know this? Most of what we know about cooking with booze comes from a 1992 study in which researchers measured the alcohol levels at the end of cooking a number of different dishes, including orange chicken and scalloped oysters. Each recipe represented a different way that we might actually add alcohol to cooking, quick flaming, to simmering food for many hours. They found that in general, the final alcohol percentage depends on time, on temperature, the starting concentration of alcohol, and the size of the pan. So which culinary techniques are the most effective at purging alcohol? 
Flaming at Dish retained 78% of the starting alcohol, contrary to the belief that flaming would actually burn away all the alcohol. Simmering for 10 minutes removed only 40% of the alcohol, but if you simmered for longer, say two and a half hours, you got rid of 95%. So those worried about their alcohol intake should maybe consider slow cooking. Any other tips for those looking to avoid getting sourced on sauce? Well, with simmering, the final percentage depends not only on the time, but also on the surface area of the pan. A wider pan removed way more alcohol. But in general, while the amounts of alcohol in dishes is usually very low, predicting the final percentage in your dish is not a simple task. Which also means it's hard to know how recovering alcoholics will respond to different dishes with alcohol. However, it's overall safe to say that the perception that alcohol is removed with cooking is a complete myth. Science tells a different story. So if you're cooking for a teetotaler, best to play it safe and keep the wine for another time. Thanks to Vayu Maini Reyktor for serving that up. Next time, we'll be buzzing about John's question. We know that flies process movement much quicker than humans, which is why it's really hard to swat them. But is it true that if you move slow enough, then the fly will not register the movement and therefore you can actually get it? And if you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can find us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on the forum. It's nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you to Alex Ashcroft for producing the programme. Next time we're answering your questions in our monthly Q&A show. If you'd like to send something in, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the EPSRC, the SDFC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye. Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. So if you need a go-to designer, a video editor, or a social media specialist for six days or six months, Upwork is how. And it's basically like they're right here in your office. Except they're not here here, so they can't hear Greg's remarkably loud typing. Hey, buddy! I take it back. You can hear that from anywhere. And Upwork professionals are proven, rated, and reviewed. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how. 